welcome to this thread of the podcast. My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something, even a donation. Thanks for listening. We are sitting here together, Judith Hood and I, in Judith's lovely sunroom in a March morning, with spring returning. And um, I'm beginning this podcast and uh, of one of its titles is Stripped Down Living. And if there's somebody in that I know uh, who has mastered the art of basic stripped down living and yet keeping the abundance mm. in her life, it's Judith Hode. So, um, Judith, that's really what I want to talk to you about is the journey to why you were drawn to this life of simple living um, and earth-connected living. And then maybe I know that you're, you like that the past informs the future. So to kind of bring that eventually to your connection with the permaculture community that I'm making these podcasts to connect to as well. Uh, and what you've seen kind of come and what you see coming in that in that uh, time. So just starting off with, yeah, where are you, how you ended up doing all this? Well, I'm not a pop music fan, but Frank Sinatra said it all when he said, I do it my way. And I've always done it my way because um, as a child, I was a pig-headed loner. I, I was an only child for six years till my brother was born. Um, and I think my mother was a bit of a social snob, so she was quite careful who she let her precious daughter play with. And um, I remember there was a little boy across the road called John Charman. He was about my age. And um, I... I was playing with him one day for some reason, and I, I spun him a, a yarn about how my mummy comes into my room and she steals my things, so I put a thread across the door so I know when she's been in because it's been broken. You know, all this kind of stuff. I was I was inventing detective stories in my head. And this child's mother came over in a towering rage to, to tell my mother what a terrible child I was because I was lying. And my mother just stood, fortunately for me, stood there and laughed at her because she had the wit to see that I was just making it up. And it was great because I didn't get punished. <laughs> so I could go on fantasizing if I wanted to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, being a loner, it was interesting. And I, in primary school in Headcorn in Kent, um, there was a lad 
His name was Eugene, but he was known as Gene Butcher. Butcher was his surname, and he was a little thug. And I had long braids. And, of course, any child who has long braids suffers having them pulled. And I used to hate it. And um, I remember going home to my mother and saying, Gene Butcher's horrible, and he's been pulling my hair. And she said, fight back, you see. And she had no patience with any of that. And one day he had a go at me, and I was tall. I mean, I'm five eight or so now, I'm a bit round-shouldered, but um, I was this height by the time I was 10. And uh, so I have long arms, very long arms. And one day he drove me so far, I actually beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and everybody was astonished. The whole playground stood back. And because I... I you know, I suddenly felt this, God, I can, I can hit him, and he can't hit me back because he hasn't got such long arms as I have. And it did wonders for me. It didn't make me any more popular, although I must say I did have a little few days of glory, you know, because I put him in his place. But it, it did enormous amount for me. Uh, who is a naturally pacific person? Um, Jerry said to me, you know, you've got a tongue like a lash. And I can, I can shred people with my tongue, but I never do physical damage mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. And that tenacity and that finding your power, yeah, like, that that became a thread, you know, but I don't associate you, Judith, with being alone or now. I mean, I, <laughs> I know you live alone and you're well able to live alone, but you have since I knew you anyway, reached out to community and there is a huge community of people who know you. And There is, um, yes. And that's partly um, um, fortuitous because, you know, I've, I don't do it so much anymore, but I've written and I've broadcast um, over the years. You know, I've had feature series in different publications and so on. Um, so I meet people who think they know me because they've read something I've written. Uh, and I've three published books and stuff like that, you know. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of disconcerting because somebody comes up to you and says, hey, hey Judith, you know, and, and they're, they've they've crossed a line they don't know is there because I don't know who in hell they are. Yes. And uh, that, that can be quite disconcerting. It depends on the individual because some people you, you find a rapport with straight away, you know, yourself, but um, not with everybody. Um, yeah, and I've, I always feel for people who have actually found me um, because they've looked for me, I, I open the door and I let them in because um, I think that, that there's a reason for that and, and it would be so churlish to say, fuck off, you know, I don't want to see you. And, and so I don't do that. And the reason many people have found you is this lifestyle you yeah. have embraced, yes. but you didn't always live... Um, you know, a simple life. You maybe had a journey. We talked last night about the Canterbury House, yes. you know, and then the Welsh House. Yeah, um, yeah. And there, there was a big difference there, you you know, moving, yeah. moving yes. to... It, it was a case of refining what we wanted and what we didn't want. I mean, I grew up in a relatively conventional household and, and we had the amenities that most households have because everybody did. Um, but also during that time, um, Daddy used to get the keys to um, a house in Wales where we would go on holiday every year. And 
I love the simplicity of that. And then later when um, I was in my early 20s, Daddy was working in Sittingbourne and he met a solicitor there. Daddy was a probation officer and he met the solicitor and they had a lot of things in common and they took a joint lease out on a, a house in Mid Wales, which was right off the road. I mean, it was a single track road to begin with and it was half a mile down a farm lane. This, this two-story big house standing and it had no amenities except, the you know, the fire and the huge, huge larder, which was as dark and as gloomy, you know. It was a great place. Baidea was its name, which means cowshed. And there was no sign of a cowshed, but that's where, you know, Baidea must have been a milking place at some time or another. And uh, also, we had all sorts of re revelations in that place. Jerry even discovered that he was a dowser quite by accident when we were living there on a, on a prolonged holiday. We had our honeymoon there and stuff like that. And um, ultimately it came to the point where, you know, here we are living in Kent in this increasingly urbanised place. We lived in Canterbury. And, um, you know, the place is thronged with tourists almost all the year round, but certainly the month of August, you wouldn't want to go into the town at all. Um, so we thought um, we, we developed a five-year plan. We're going to move to Wales. And... Um, we went down on several sorties to discover places. And we had been looking at places over a half-term weekend because Jerry was teaching at that time in the in the system. And um, we were on our homeward journey and we had decided to go up through the mountains um, before we went back onto the main road to get back to Kent. And we were going up this valley called Cumtur, which is the the valley of the, the boar, the, the male pig. And um, we saw a chimney with no smoke. And Jerry said, let's go and have a look at that. So it was down a lane off the road that we were on, which was already single track. And uh, there we found it, Wernvedu. And that means hermit's meadow. Yes. So... Um, yeah, that, that triggered it off, and we, we um, made an offer for it. Um, the guy who owned it, it was Blind Turch was, was a farm that was an amalgam of 11 small holdings and had become this great big grazing farm. And the man who owned it didn't actually live there. His son did, who was a very strange character. Um, and... Uh, he wanted a new Land Rover and a new Land Rover at that time was 500 quid. So he, he saw the opportunity to have a new Land Rover. So he sold it to us at 500 quid. And here we were with this, it was probably, um, it might've been as much as half an acre by the time we'd included the, the garden on a very steep hillside. So it was kind of terraced. You had the, the, there was the hillside coming down behind the house. We had to have it dug out at the back with the JCB, you know, to make any kind of drainage and stuff, and also to build out a bit at the back. And then there was the the yard, which was flat and about as wide as a tractor. And then the next bit down. So we we put a um, 
a yard for our goats, which which we got inevitably, you know, how you do as a smallholder. And uh, we kept goats for 12 years, and I made cheese, and the children could milk by the time they are eight years old, you know, that sort of thing. And little kids used to come and, can I collect the eggs? The little townies, yeah, you've got to collect the eggs. (laughs) We had ducks and hens and all these sort of things, and a cat and a dog, and, and when you were doing this, this was very counterculture. Very counterculture, yes. And it was counterculture particularly for a female. But I never had time for pretty curtains. I'd much rather be be making furniture or something like that. Um, and I've always been interested in um, anything that one could create. I mean, I was a dressmaker. Professionally, I was a dressmaker. Judith of Canterbury. Um for many years, well, several years anyway. And um, so so creating things in the round was very much to my liking. And as a child, I remember using all sorts of strange little bits and pieces and matchboxes and building whole villages of of stuff all out of my head with with anything that happened to be handy. And um, so I suppose I'm really an architect monkey, I think, because I love creating space for for you know and and it's how you delineate space that gives you the space Mm -hmm. and yeah so that sets me off on a whole other thing but um yeah so i did it my way all the time and and through all of that early especially the early transition part Mm. when you just moved and and you got you know was all the excitement there did you find struggles with that transition or did you love it all the way through um yeah i can I can remember things i mean this isn't chronological, but I remember um because Jerry was an artist, he was in demand for certain things socially, and the young farmers, different young farmers' clubs would come to see us after dark so that nobody could see them approaching um to get him to design backgrounds for their displays for the annual show and all that kind of stuff, um, which he always did anonymously. But, I mean, everybody knew. <laughs> you only got to look at how that's a cherry you know, if you were in the know. But and that coming to you in the dark, why was that? Because you've told me that before, that other neighbours came to to visit in the dark. So why did the young farmers the feel young farm- they didn't want other people to know? They well, I think, I think that was purely a, a, from a competitive point of oh, view. Okay. And they didn't want okay. other people to know that they were getting probably okay. an outsider to give them a hand. But sometimes neighbours didn't come to you because they didn't want to be seen to be associating with you. Uh, I think in to a degree way. in some in ways, some way. yes. Because, um, you know, when I was younger, there was a much clearer delineation between the conformist and the non-conformist. And it has to be said, I'm just a natural non-conformist. I do it my way. So, um, But I'm not a non-conformist if it's going to hurt somebody. I'm very sensitive to not wanting to hurt people. Um, I, I have a lovely friend in, in um, Donegal Town. She's from Cuba. And I remember, I don't know how many years ago it was, I was walking to the post office in Donegal Town, which is a residential street with the post office in the middle of it. And uh, I saw this tall black girl coming towards me, and she looked so sad. 
in, in repose. Her face just looked so sad. And I thought, I've never seen her before. So I suddenly remembered what had happened to us when we first came here. And, and it had happened two or three times. Somebody came up to us with an extended hand and said, welcome to this land. And this was when you'd moved to Ireland, to Donegal. Yes, yes. that's what they did in Donegal. So um, I saw Vivian coming towards me and I just went straight up to her. I said, welcome to this land. And she took my hand and she started to laugh. It went completely from, you know, this sadness to this this hilarity. And I said, what are you laughing for? She said, I've lived here for three years, she said. I said, well, I've never seen you before. <laughs> She'd married a, a local man and she's got two lovely children. They've grown up now. But, um, yeah, so and we're the greatest of pals. She's a lovely woman, and I was lucky enough I visited her family in Cuba <laughs> about three years ago. But so in that, I mean, just back in Wales for a moment, the, yeah. you were learning a lot of new skills um, and and becoming competent. I mean, you're at goat milking, at uh, making yeah. teas, and, and, and also learning, you know, going back to herbs and, you know, natural medicines. It's and true, so on. it's true, yeah. Um, well, that that was something that I I sort of got interested in quite young because um, I have big teeth and a small jaw. And when I was fifteen, I was sent into St Pancras Hospital in London to have five buried teeth removed. They were growing in my upper jaw from left to right or right to left, rather than coming it down. <clears throat> and um, because this is nineteen fifty three, this is. Um, a time when penicillin was known as the magic bullet. That was what it was called. And it was used for everything. And it was used prophylactically as well as, um, you know, so they gave me two great big jabs in my bum of penicillin. And, of course, in those days, the treatment or understanding of allergy was virtually non-existent. And I had a, a an incredible reaction to it. Um, and it was it was summertime. And um, I was off school. It was July and it was lovely weather. And I sat out in the sunshine. I couldn't understand why I was covered with nettle rash and I itched so incredibly. And it took several years before I had it diagnosed and several years of thinking, why does the sunshine always do this to me? But it had only done it to me since I'd had penicillin. And to this day, and I'm 80 this year, I still can't sit out in the sun without getting this rash, which will occur everywhere except my face and hands, which are conditioned. Um, so if I strip off down to my bra, I'm going to, by the end of the day, I'm going to be covered with itchy red lumps, which means I don't get um, melanoma. <laughs> it's something, there's an upside to everything. Yeah. And, uh, and I tend to look like that. You know, the cup isn't half empty. It's, it's half full. But that led you into natural medicine. It did. Absolutely, yes. When I started having children, I, I wasn't conscious of it until then because I was a healthy little brute, you know. Um, and, um, yeah, when the children came along, I, I was very conscious of, um, you know, the Mendel theory and how things are inherited. And I thought, yes, I'm going to have to pay attention to this. So how do I do that? And I thought, well, there has to be something which is a counter-irritant to regular medicine. So there was I living in the middle of Wales with two languages and surrounded by elderly people. So I just started visiting elderly people and asking them 
What did you use for yourselves and your animals before the National Health Service was was invented? And that's how I started. And I learned all sorts of things. And after two or three years, I was thinking, yeah, and one of the kids got sick with something or another. And I thought, yeah, no, you don't go to the doctor. You you use this. And if it doesn't work after three days, then you go to the doctor. (laughs) And it worked. And it was a great revelation to me. And you see, the other thing was that I was such a determined nonconformist that it wasn't difficult to do it my way. And um, when I discovered that my way very often worked and and it worked without side effects, and this was the other thing about, you know, about mainstream medicine was the incredible side effects that you could have a miracle cure for something, but it, it could leave somebody so debilitated. And uh, I felt there had to be a better way to do things than that. So that's what led me down it. And, um, of course, as I... Uh, increased my my experience and I kept records I'm good at keeping records um I I think I've still got the first notebook I I ever used and um it just became a thing and I just got more and more knowledge of it. it was very hard to get um any kind of book the only thing I had was was something that was published in the middle of the 19th century um, I've forgotten the name of the author now. I still have the book in there. It's a beautifully bound. Um, but it, it gave, there were drawings of um, different herbs and descriptions of them, but no very clear indication of how they were used. I was years before I knew how you made a tincture. What is a tincture, for God's sake, you know? Um, and now I realize it's so easy. Um, and all you need is pure alcohol and and good water, and um, and your plant material. But I didn't then. I had to learn the hard way. And then ultimately, having learned it, I had to share it. So I began teaching it many many years later. Obviously, but um, it seemed to me a valid thing to be passing on because there were a lot of people reaching the point that I had reached that they were finding that pharmaceutical medicine didn't suit them. Yes. And they wanted some other other path to help themselves and their families. So um, natural medicine for householders was the name of my my course because I wasn't teaching people to be professionals. I was teaching them to help in their own environment. And when you did come to Donegal, I mean, you followed that interest of forgotten skills by being interested in the tweed, by being interested in yeah. th- th- that old, visiting old ladies to find out what they knew. Yes, yes. Theme, yes. Um, you know, that you continued that. Yeah. And then and then it's that connection of passing that on to those who also wanted to. Yeah, know. well, you see, I had um, Gwaith Llawerin is, is a Welsh phrase, which means um, folk handwork. There's an English word for it, which has escaped me at the moment, but... Um, so Gryflower Wearing Cottage Industries was the that's the, what it means. Um was the name of our, of our business. And I ran a craft school. So um I employed three other people whom I previously taught um to do um spinning, weaving, quilting, and calligraphy. So they were my skills. So I, I got a group of us and we ran this school every summer. For I can't remember how many years, but it was a relatively short period. But we did that before we came here to Ireland, 
And so when I came to Ireland, um, here's this indigenous textile called Donegal Tweed. And here am I who, who writes, who, who is into text, textiles. Uh, you know, I could spin, I could weave, I could dye, I could do all those things. And I thought, um, there's a book here. So on my bicycle, I started touring Donegal. And I went as far south as Achill Island, where I met the redoubtable June Fielding, who is long dead now, but was a wonderful woman, retired from Alexandra and um, hosted several of my visits there. And we became very firm friends. Um, and uh, I just explored the, the background and met people who were still practicing because this is a long time ago. This is the late 1980s. And um, most of those people have passed on, although they're the, the firms are still there, but the hand workers are not. And um, it became, this is Donegal Tweed. Now, originally, I had a publisher in Steve McDonough in um, Dingle. Steve and I fell out about something. Yes, we fell out about editing because um, he had an editor and the editor turned technical um terminology into gobshite and i just got so angry about the whole thing in fact <laughs> jerry laughed at me because i i had this thing back and i was reading what had been edited and it was just gibberish and i was i was striding up and down the yard crying <laughs> and shrieking about this man's an idiot <laughs> and, so on. and in the end i said um to Steve, I, I can't tolerate this. I'm going to publish this book myself. So I edited it myself and I published it myself. And I think there were something like three punctuation mistakes. I was that accurate. And it, it's it's a book of, of I don't know, 50,000 words. So um, And it's still the definitive work on Donegal Tweed. Nothing else has ever caught up with it. And it's still in print. I have about 400 copies in the shed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the things you're touching on there, which in permaculture we would probably call creatively adapt to change, mm. um, is that you've turned your hand to all these different mm. things over the years. And, and you've also had a bit of nomadism in, in moving, you mm. know, mm. three times and, and starting over. And then here in Donegal, you found another little property up a little track and, did, yes. um, and you know, yes. started the same process yes. of getting a fire. And, yeah. and, but, but you've always stopped short of, you know, letting it get too complicated again or, let you know, keeping it simple. And from, from each plate, I mean, we started out with, a t with a, what was effectively a terrace house. It was actually half of a, it was a semi-detached, but it was in a terrace um, in Canterbury. That was the first house we actually owned. <clears throat> um, but when we bought that, it had um, one cold water tap and an outside jacks. And when we left it, it was fully wired and it had an amazing bathroom and shower on the top floor and, and all sorts of, of lovely things. It was a very beautiful house. And we only enjoyed it for about a month before we left it. <laughs> um, and and its, its plumbing system was designed by a, a lifelong inmate of Maidstone Prison because Jerry used to go and teach stained glass there. They were making windows for the chapel. Um, 
that one night a week and uh, one of the men in there, they, he was talking to them about what he was doing with the house that we bought and he was no practical man. I was the practical one. And um, this man designed the, Jerry took in the, the, the plan of the house and the man designed the hot water system, which I'm sure is illegal, but who cares? It was great and it worked and it gave the man a lot of satisfaction. And when you're in for life, yeah. Jerry used to say that the best thing that he would hear at the end of an evening's work was, um, gosh, that went quickly. You know, the two hours he had there. So, um, yeah. So we're talking about moving then to Wales and then moving again and each time keeping it simple. Yes, each time it got simpler Mm -hmm. because going from from Canterbury where we'd um, completely modernised a house which was sound, um, it belonged to Fremlins, the brewer, and it was in good condition physically, but it was unmodernized. So we left that beautifully modernized uh, to go to live in a in a house that had been unoccupied for 40 years and had absolutely no amenities at all. And then this house also... This house was the same, o- yes. Well, this had not been occupied for two years. Okay. Um, and it was still furnished. Um, the old man who'd lived here was a bachelor and he died of, I think he died of cancer um, when he was in his, I don't know, 70s. Um, and we bought the house from um, an, an elderly man who lived down in the townland. Um, so we bought an old three-roomed cottage with outbuildings attached to the end. And the outbuildings were shabby and low and hard to get into and smelly because there was no toilet and there was a corner of the shed which we decided had been used by the occupant. And it was like a a midden. But by that stage, fortunately, it it had been unused for so long that it had, you know, it had decomposed into compost and it wasn't as offensive as it sounds. Um, So we had to sort all that out. Um, But having said that, we didn't have toilet facilities either. And for a long time, we used to hop over the stile that we made in the, in the fence around the edge of our garden into the field with a spade every morning. And we would dig a three-sided divot, flip it back, poop into the hole and cover it up again. And I can actually remember one day sitting down there farting and then hearing another fart and looking sideways and there's the cat having a crap about 10 feet away. (laughs) And we're looking at one another saying, oh. (laughs) Yeah, when you have... No basic amenities, you know, ordinary functions can be very, very funny sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, when you've stopped at keeping it, um, you know, like I mean, you have gained amenities and you have, you know, your Jerry studio is built and, the, you know, in recent years, the roundhouse, you know, you, you always seem to choose uh, spaces with very clear functions and very and 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 it's like you're saying you know this is enough i don't need you know that that yeah i need less more likely than i need more yes yes and when you talk about the roundhouse um for a long long time i had this urge to build because what i've done through my life is buy something that exists or jerry and i did this we bought something that existed and then adapted it 
um, or extended or did something to it. Um, and increasingly as the years went by, I wanted to create. So for, for three years uh, way back, I had my finger on a field in Clare next door to Tommy and Anita Hayes, and um, who are our old friends. And uh, the guy who owned that was so tolerant with me, and he was so good, and he was going to – it was a big field, and he was going to sell it to me for 50 grand. And could I sell this house? I tried, and I tried, and I tried. And um, nobody was interested. Nobody even gave me an offer. They just come – and two women came, two middle-aged women came one day, and they walked away down my lane to wherever their car had been parked – and they were giggling. And I thought, they're giggling about what they've seen here. Sod it. I'm not doing this again. I'm not exposing myself to other people. I thought, well, if I can't move to Claire, I'm going to stay here and I'm going to do something here. That and I didn't think of it consciously in that way, but that's what the roundhouse is about. It's getting that bit of um, um, architectural um, creativity out of my system. So it, it's built from um, timber and cob, and the walls are composed of pieces of of spruce, which are 16 inches long, and each cut end is a face of a wall. So they, they, if you look at it when it's unplastered, you just see the discs of the ends of the pieces of timber, and the cob was the mortar. And uh, it's a 16-foot, five-metre... Five diameter internally and it sits on a plinth of um, dry stone walling and I caused it to be built by um, creating a workshop space for people to come and initially I got the permaculture department Paul O'Flynn and his students from um, Kinsale mm-hmm. and they came up for a week at the end of August, um, Jeannie Mac, what year was it? Some time ago now. And um, they, they built the plinth and um, created the, the drain. And, and you know, we, we got a head start there. So I kept a photographic record of that. So I have a, a hardback book with a complete record from cutting the first sod to and working out how it was going, because it's on a sloping site. And it had, to, you know, had to have a, a found which was much higher on the lower side than the other, and all that kind of stuff. And what, in, in effect, I did, I created the plan, handed it over to Rob O'Brien, who was the young son of a friend living in Mount Charles at the time, and he was studying at Kinsale, and he was totally. I've never met anybody, and especially with the generational difference, that he and I saw the thing exactly the same way. And we never had any arguments. We had discussions, but we never had an argument. And um, he just translated what was inside my head and, and was drawn, you know, because I did do drawings for it. Um, and we, we got volunteer labor. So I actually paid Rob. When he worked here, I paid him 100 euro a day and fed him and did the rest of it. Um, <clears throat> but everybody else was a volunteer. And they were wonderful. They were absolutely amazing. So we worked them from 10 in the morning until um, 1 o'clock when we all joined together for lunch. 
And we sat over lunch for so long as the conversation lasted, and then we went back to work till five. And it worked really well, and several people came more than once, you know. And um, that brings me on to your connection to the permaculture community. When did you discover this, you know, another? I know that each generation has their same words for many, Mm. you know, much of the same things, but when did you connect with, uh, you know, the movement or the the connection to permaculture? Because you have been quite connected to that. Yeah, but you see... I was practicing permaculture before the word was even invented. Well, exactly. That's my and, point. And but it, you somehow have managed to connect to the newbies or the newcomers. In yeah, permaculture. I, th- I think we were partly. Talking about knowing Philip Allen, who's one of the elders of permaculture in Ireland. Who? Philip Allen. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah, like I've known that. Phil so, for a long time. You know, where, where did, when do you remember connecting with that community here? Or I think it wasn't, it wasn't a conscious thing. It happened. And um, partly because I would, in, in the days before they even called them woofers, I would have taken woofers, oh, for since when I lived in Wales, you know, we had woofers by any other name. Um, and I suppose that partly did. Oh, and i tell you the other thing. My oldest granddaughter, Naomi Dowds, um, she uh, enrolled in the first um the first permaculture course in Kinsale. So I had a connection in that direction. Yeah. So Naomi was a, was a, um, you know, the link really. And that was through her that I met Paul, who was her, her um, permaculture lecturer. And it was through that I got, and, and funnily enough, he brought a crowd up and Naomi wasn't amongst them. But <laughs> that, uh, yeah, that happened. And what just moving us to that idea of the future? What do you see having happened with the, the you know there's these many more waves of people coming into these related movements, the, yes. the, you know permaculture and the tiny homes movement. Yeah, you know that. What, what do you see happening in that, and and where that might be going? You know, like you've seen it kind of from a long, yeah. you, have a lot, you have a more longitudinal perspective on it than most of us do. Yeah, I think. Um, the world as we know it politically is changing rapidly and radically at the moment with the rise of the right wing and this incredible um, wrong kind of nationalism that, that's rising. And I think there's going to be, there are going to be certain people in the community who can't tolerate that and are going to look for somewhere where they can be themselves and do it their way, as I have done here, or we did originally. Um, because Jerry and I were very much in tune over all of this, uh, which was fairly unusual because mostly women were more concerned about, you know, the hang of the curtains than how the foundation was made, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think the world is in for a very um, difficult period and one of the things that frustrates me is I'm unlikely to be here to see what's happening because <laughs> I'm 80 this year. <laughs> well, my family goes in for longevity and I have extraordinarily rude health. Um, you know, I might have another 15 years, but um, yeah. And the permaculture people or the people that would be on that umbrella that you've met, you know, seeing that wave coming of, of people already stepping away from that yeah. world that they don't like 
Um, anything that you, you notice about them, you know, anything that they're bringing that you've learned from or? I think one learns from everybody one meets, you know, and what I enjoy is the openness of the young. Oh, the ones I meet anyway. Um, and, you know, I, I can very easily be flattered by their attention to what does Judith think? And, you know, I have to bring myself back to earth quite frequently and think, you know, you're only one old bag. You know, there's lots of others out there doing things. So, um, but but like that, I learn from them as well, you know. And uh, I think that's the important thing. I remember Jerry and I were visiting his brother's widow in Canada in oh, some long time ago in the early 90s, I think it was. And we went for five weeks to Canada to um, to spread Bob's ashes because this woman hadn't told us that he was even ill. She got in touch a month after he died. And uh, we'd never met her before. Anne Vanden Hoogen, her name was. They were never married. Strange lady. But um, we went over and spent five weeks there. Why was I going there? Oh, yes. During that time... I had my 60th birthday, and it seemed like quite a landmark. And I'd always been, in the back of my mind, I'd always had this thing about growing up. And I'd always felt, I'd never attained that sort of phrase that, you know, are you grown up or are you not? And and I suddenly realized that the up had absolutely no bearing on anything. It was the growing that was important. And I mean, this is something that most people would recognize far younger than I was. <laughs> Suddenly at 60, I had this liberating thought, oh, I've only got to go on growing. I don't have to do it up. I don't have to suddenly become an adult. And it was such a liberating thought. So I could revert to childhood quite easily. Mm-hmm. Judith, it's been wonderful speaking with you, as always. Um, thank you very much for helping me begin this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank you for indulging me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we'll um, wrap it up there, I think. <laughs>